You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, Pablo, Toves, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Bobby, Montica, and Doug. And I'd like to welcome our two newest Commodores, Gin-Soaked Jim and the Knight of Dampier. And last but certainly not least, warm birthday wishes to one of our newest patrons, Skipper. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. The Barbary Corsairs are a topic that we have criminally neglected here on the Pirate History Podcast. And we're not going to rectify that today, but I do want you to keep it in the back of your mind that they're always out there, in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic coastal waters, preying primarily on European shipping. We've talked about the height of the Barbary Pirates, the brothers Barbarossa, and of course John Ward and Simon Danziker, but they were around far before Columbus ever sailed for America, and they're going to continue to be a problem long after the golden age of piracy has ended. While we in the U.S. often overlook Barbary pirates, I mean, the Caribbean pirates are so much more fun, the Barbary pirates do hold a special place in the European mind. A capture by Barbary pirates was a sentence of lifelong slavery. The only way out was to buy your freedom, and unless you or your family was independently wealthy, there wasn't a lot of hope. One or two popes did get involved when high-ranking church officials were captured, and there were monasteries in Italy, France, and Spain that did raise funds to buy back Barbary captives. But for the most part, you were a slave. Very occasionally, Powerful states with large navies would get involved when the Barbary pirates became a real concern. But it wasn't an act of humanitarianism. No, they did it when their nation's prestige was on the line, when enough of a certain country's native sons were sailing 
out of the Barbary coast, enough of them that it got noticed. For the English and the Dutch, though, this was becoming a common affair in the 1600s. Every time they would have a war and employ thousands of privateers, they would then end the war, and they would threaten to execute any of those privateers who continued the trade as pirates. Inevitably, a host of unrepentant privateers would sail for North Africa where they could stay on the account. Equally reliably, England or the Netherlands would eventually have to send a fleet to Africa to deal with the problem. In 1675, following the most recent war, England sent Admiral Sir John Narborough to deal with the problem of Tunis and Tripoli. But you all remember Sir John Narborough, right? He was a prominent admiral in the 17th century. He was the man that sailed an English fleet to Patagonia and then on to Lima in Peru. He attempted to negotiate a trade treaty with the Spanish there. I postulated long, long ago that this voyage under Admiral Narborough may have instigated the interest in the Pacific coast of South America. It may have been the impetus for some of those backroom deals in the English court that led us to the Pacific adventure. John Narborough is all over our story, though. Usually not dealing with pirates, he's busy winning great naval battles and honor and prestige. But his Barbary trip in 1675 is a perfect example of English diplomacy at the time. He sailed in intending to make a deal, but before even attempting to do so, he bombarded Tunis and Tripoli with all of his guns until they were ready to sign a lasting treaty with England. Algiers was a problem as well, but that was a French problem. However, those three cities were responsible for almost all of the Barbary piracy in the Mediterranean. But then, once, thanks to John Narborough, they were brought to heel, the pirates living in those cities had to find another locale, a new base, and they fled to an old favorite, the Moroccan port near the Atlantic coast of Salih. The English and the Dutch were well acquainted with the Salih rovers. They had been ever since Jan Janssoon established the base in 1615. Still, when King Charles II of England was pushed by international pressure and the scourge of piracy to make a declaration against English pirates living in Boston and Providence and Port Royal and the other Providence, it was his brother, James, the Lord High Admiral, that was sent out to deal with the Sali Rovers. In one of his last voyages as Lord High Admiral, James Stewart sent a fleet to Sali to root the pirates out of their bases and break their backs. Now this was a relatively small naval action, in terms of the great battles that we've seen in the wars and will see in the wars to come. But in terms of ramifications to our story, it's huge in a host of different ways. Remember this attack on Sali. We will be referring to it again and again. Today, though, that raid on Sali has one very notable outcome. The English fleet captured several ships, but one of them was a powerful man-o'-war. We don't know what her name was at the time, but the English called her Sally Rose. I like to imagine that that's a nod to her red standard, the Sally Rouge that was flown by the pirates out of Morocco. 
The Sally Rose was sailed back to England and converted into a sixth-rate, 16-gun ship of the line, and rechristened officially the HMS Rose. She, like some of the other ships taken there at Sully, was given into the command of a new captain, a promising young up-and-comer in the Royal Navy. That captain sailed Sally Rose to Boston, where she would patrol New England's coastal waters. Her captain was a good, patriotic, loyal kingsman named Thomas Pound. This is episode 164. Thomas Pound. Part 1. The King of England, Charles, was in need of good, loyal, honest men. Really, his brother, the Lord High Admiral James, Duke of York, he was in need of good, loyal men. King Charles' health was failing by the time of that attack on Sully, and James was in line to take the throne. As he was Lord High Admiral, he was in a position to fill the ranks of the navy with the best of the best as far as he was concerned, with men he could trust. Now that was a project of years, and by the time he eventually did take the throne of England, the navy was in, as James saw it, very good hands. Thomas Pound was one of those men, the kind of captain who loved the king and kept an eye on those Puritan Bostonians as much as he did the enemy you know, whoever the enemy might be at the time, and at this point, that included almost everyone, even presumably, in some eyes, the people of Boston. Today, I would like to look at pirate history in the mid-1680s through the eyes of Thomas Pound. He and Sally Rose patrolled the coast of New England for smugglers and pirates, and, of course, the Dutch. Everyone was on high alert for Dutch incursions, there were a ton of tensions between England and the Netherlands, and we will get to those, but that's not the crux of today's show. Plus, Thomas Pound's primary job appears to have been hunting pirates. Now, this may just have been a symptom of the era in which he sailed for the Navy, an era in which there were a ton of pirates in New England. And then King Charles promulgated those edicts, which gave the navy men a bunch of extra work hunting down pirates. And then, of course, there were all of those smaller royal notices, like one we talked about last time concerning Thomas Paine. The Sally Rose is an excellent source for what was going on in terms of piracy in New England. We have records of what she was up to most of the time. Sir Edmund Andros, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, mobilized Sally Rose against a number of high-profile pirate threats. For example, in 1683, Sally Rose was dispatched to Chesapeake Bay and the Virginia Colony because of a rumor that John Cook and Edward Davis had been spotted in Virginia. As it happens, they were in Virginia. They were there to pick up William Dampier. Of course, by the time the Sally Rose arrived in Virginia, the pirates were long gone. They were already well on their way to Africa, where they would capture the Bachelor's Delight, and then head off to the Pacific to finish the job started by Admiral Narborough. However, upon his arrival in Virginia, Captain Thomas Pound was encouraged to stay in the Chesapeake for a few months longer. There was, at that point an even greater pirate menace than John Cook and Edward Davis, perhaps the greatest threat currently active in the West Indies, a man named Capitan Jean Hamlin. 
Hamlin was a really scary pirate. In part because, unlike many of our characters so far, he was a real pirate. A man with no allegiances and no honor. Not even to his comrades. Naturally, he captured Spanish and Portuguese shipping, as well as the English. He also captured shipping out of France, his home country, and perhaps most surprisingly, he captured a number of Dutch ships in his time. Which is surprising because his patron was a Dutch rogue governor of St. Thomas named Adolf Esmet. Hamlin captured merchantmen and naval vessels and even, on occasion, pirate ships. His greatest prize, arguably, was a ship known as La Trompeuse, or the Trickster, a 30-gun royal French merchant vessel. In 1682, Trompeuse was sent from France to Port Royal, Jamaica, under a captain named Pierre Le Payne. Every pirate in the West Indies saw this 30-gun royal merchantman and began sniffing after her, which makes it, to my mind, a bit suspicious that Pierre Le Payne chose to settle down there in Port Royal and sent his ship, the Trompeuse, off to pick up logwood in Campeche for the journey home. Inevitably, La Trompeuse was captured by 120, quote, desperate rogues. Now, who those rogues were isn't exactly clear. There are French and English and Dutch records that all tell different stories about what pirates were where at the time. The record appears to be clear that whoever captured the Trompeuse were French, but that's where the conjecture begins. The English blamed an up-and-coming pirate, Laro de Graaf, but Michel de Grammont, Jean Rose, and Jan Willems, well, they were all tossed onto the pile as possibilities as well, or perhaps accomplices. However, all of those pirates had alibis. Of course, those alibis were from the French governor and Petit Guave, so the English didn't exactly believe them. The record is confused on this point. But it was probably Jean Hamelin. His name wasn't yet known to the authorities, so when the English began speculating, they would not have guessed it was Hamelin. However, even if he didn't initially capture La Trompeuse, he did capture her from whoever did before long. Over the next few months, Hamelin and La Trompeuse engaged in a campaign of terror in the Windward Passage and on the coast of the Yucatan. Eighteen ships fell to Jean Hamelin, nearly all of them out of Port Royal. That's when Governor Lynch and Henry Morgan started handing out commissions to the likes of Thomas Paine and John Coxon. Their job was to hunt Jean Hamelin down. They offered Jan Willems a commission as well, but Willems was busy in Mexico. That threat, the threat of Jean Hamlin, is why Thomas Pound was in Chesapeake Bay at the time. Now, they didn't expect Jean Hamlin to venture north, to North America. However, Chesapeake Bay was the best location that the English had in North America to muster a fleet should that happen, or should their West Indian allies need assistance. Of course, no one in the Chesapeake ever even sniffed John Hamlin, who, after a few weeks, ran off to Africa. But Sally Rose returned to her base in New England just in time to greet another man, one of those who had been tasked with hunting Hamlin down, Thomas Paine. Now, as we discussed last time, Thomas Paine was welcomed in Rhode Island, but he was still under suspicion. The governors of the Council of New England considered him enough of a 
menace, if not a threat, that the Sally Rose hung around looking threatening just in case Thomas Paine pulled any dirty tricks or had some friends waiting in the wings. Now, of course, Paine didn't, and eventually Thomas Pound returned to Boston and his regular patrol route. He was sailing the Nantucket Sound, just off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, when another pirate, an associate of Thomas Paine's, and at one point, Jean Hamlin's, arrived in 1684. Jan Willems. A little background on what Jan Willems had been up to. After he parted ways with George Wright and Thomas Paine a couple of years earlier, he joined up with the Tortuga Buccaneers under Michel de Grammont. He joined in on that ultimately failed attempt at a Cuban blockade in 1682. But Jan Willems rallied the troops, and in November 1683, he and Nicholas von Horn and Lauro de Graff and Mikhail André Zun led what really is the last great raid of the Buccaneer era. They attacked Veracruz in the Gulf of Mexico. It was a big, profitable pirate action that enriched all 800 Buccaneers involved, but it also put a price on their heads. After the raid on Veracruz, in a time of peace, Spain was out for blood, pirate blood. The pirates and a Spanish armada fought a serious naval engagement just outside of Cartagena around Christmas, 1683. So the fleet, the pirate fleet, dispersed. Pirates roved all over the world. Now, who all was there at Veracruz, we can't say for certain, the names we just mentioned were there, of course, but there were 800 other pirates. We can, however, make some educated guesses about names that would shortly become notable who may have been there. And, for the most part, these are guesses. Some of them are probable guesses, even likely guesses, but some of them less so. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
The French pirates that were about to cross the Isthmus of Panama and join the likes of John Cook and Charles Swan and William Dampier on the second Pacific adventure, well, they were probably running from the fury of the Windward Fleet in the West Indies. That means Francois Grenet, Francis Townley, Mathurin de Marais, Pierre de Picard, even George Dew, and, of course, Peter Harris the Younger. They all very likely participated in the raid on Veracruz. However, our record of their actions begins in 1685, when Revenot de Luzon joined them and started writing things down, also when they joined up with William Dampier. So we couldn't say for sure if they were at Veracruz, but it's almost certain that that was the case. Then there were a few pirates who had previously served under Jean Hamlin, but after Hamlin ran off for Africa, they joined up with Jan Willems. Those are names that we will be discussing in much more detail in the very near future. Names like Jean Fanton, Jacob Evertson, and George Peterson. But then I want to toss out a couple of unlikely possibilities. Unlikely, but possible. The first pirate who may have been at Veracruz, or at least could have been, is a Scotsman. After coming to America, he settled in New York, once England took it over, and he's rumored at one point to have been serving with some West Indian pirates around this time. William Kidd, not yet Captain Kidd, just William, could have been at Veracruz. If he was, he could have sailed under Jan Willems, and if that's the case, it's very probable that he would have returned to New England in 1684. Now, it's much more likely that William Kidd wasn't at Veracruz, which we'll return to in just a second. But first, the other unlikely pirate who may, could have been at Veracruz. Henry Avery, also known as Henry Avery, or Long Ben, or Benjamin Bridgman. Well, he's something of a ghost in the record. The myths and the legends that surround his life before turning to piracy are legion. And I should say they're all disreputable. Now, we're going to talk at great length about Henry Avery in the near future, and the many, many myths that surround his life. But there are those who would suggest, probably erroneously, that Henry Avery was a pirate already here in the early 1680s. Now, those who would make that suggestion would almost certainly be wrong, but I do want to mention the possibility. I can say, though, that it's highly unlikely. The only hard facts we have about Henry Avery's early life come from the Royal Navy. Henry Avery, like Thomas Pound, was a navyman, a Royal Navyman. And I should note that the record of his time in the Navy uses both the spellings of Avery and Every. They're the same person, but I'm going to choose to call him Avery moving forward. Henry Avery, we know, sailed in at least two fleets, commanded by none other than the Lord High Admiral James Stewart. The first of those fleets sailed for the Dutch East Indies and fought the Dutch in the Franco-Dutch War over in Asia, and Avery wasn't the only pirate there, serving under, and I should say far, far under, James Stewart. The second time, though, that Avery served under James Stewart was when the Lord High Admiral sailed for the Mediterranean. 
That fleet, one unit of that fleet at least, James was nowhere to be seen at the time, but a unit of that Royal Navy fleet sailed for the Moroccan coast and the pirate port at Salih. That's when the Sally Rose was captured and the Sally Rovers broken. It's possible that Thomas Pound, loyal Royal Navyman, knew Henry Avery, also a loyal Royal Navyman. It's even possible, though if this were the case it probably would have made it into the record, but it's possible that Henry Avery himself served on board Sally Rose under Captain Thomas Pound. Now, I don't know that that's the case. Don't go putting that in any papers. These are all guesses of what could have been. What we do know, much more reliably, according to the record, is what a famous pirate in 1684, Jan Willems, was up to after the raid on Veracruz. He sailed north for New England and was spotted near Martha's Vineyard in the Nantucket Sound by Thomas Pound and the Sally Rose. I like to imagine, given the geography here, that Jan Willems had sailed first to Providence, Rhode Island, to visit his old friend Thomas Paine. And I should note that, if that were the case, it's possible that at this point Jan Willems was introduced to a young Scotsman with an interest in the sea rover's life who had been living in New York named William Kidd. That is, of course, if Kidd was not at Veracruz, and I think... If either of these possibilities have any truth at all, the second is more likely. If William Kidd did indeed sail with a West Indian pirate in the mid-1680s, it's probable that it began here with Jan Willem's visit to New England. It would be at least a very good opportunity for Kidd to meet one of the most notorious buccaneers of the 17th century while living at his home in New England. What we do know we know thanks to the governor of New Hampshire, Edward Cranfield. Of course, you'll remember Edward Cranfield from his moralistic declamations against Thomas Paine from last time. He was that busybody governor with no access to the sea who made justified but factually inaccurate claims against Thomas Paine. Well, when Jan Willems arrived in New England, Cranfield was at it again. He wrote, quote, a French privateer of 35 guns has arrived at Boston. I am credibly informed that they share 700 pounds sterling a man. The Bostoners no sooner heard of her off the coast than they dispatched a messenger and pilot to convey her into port in defiance of the king's proclamation. The pirates are likely to leave the greatest part of their plate behind, having bought up most of the choice goods in Boston. The ship is now fitting for another expedition. End quote. Now, that ship was not Jan Willems. That was, in fact, Mikhail Andres Zun on board his ship La Moutine. They called it the Francesca, which was her original name. Now, Andres Zun had also been at Veracruz and was, after a few days, followed by Jan Willems, who was, at the time, being shadowed by Thomas Pound and the Sally Rose. Now, Pound called Willems' ship the dolphin, but it was in fact the dolphin. This is a mistake that we see over and over again. La Moutine, André Zun's ship, was being repaired by the shipwrights in Boston when the authorities decided that, 
Cranfield may have been on to something, and due to the king's declaration, it was probably best to cover their bases and to arrest Mikhail Andre soon. He and his men were detained. His vessel, La Moutine, was impounded, and Jan Willems, who was still at sea, took the opportunity to run. He got out of there as fast as possible. The Sally Rose and Captain Pound pursued Jan Willems until he and his men were well out of New England waters. Once they felt it was safe, Sally Rose returned to Boston, but by that time, a couple of weeks later, Mikhail Andre Zun had been released by the authorities there. He had produced sufficient evidence that he had a commission from the governor of Petit Guave. And it's notable here that both Mikhail Andre Zun and Jan Willems, though they were sailing for the French, were Dutchmen. Now, I'm going to save all of this political stuff for next time, but remember that at this moment England and the Netherlands were at odds. This wasn't out of the ordinary, they were usually at odds, but during this period, William, the third Prince of Orange, and the House of Stuart in England were engaged in a war of words, a war that would soon blossom into a war of, you know, fighting. The French were, however, respected and shown deference even in English society, at least officially, from the king. So when these Dutchmen, who were under suspicion, produced papers from the French governor, they were allowed to roam free. This was going to be consequential later on, but it was not at this moment of concern to the governor of Massachusetts, nor to the loyal king's man Thomas Pound. New England had other problems. They were about to have a spate of localized piracy. Mostly they were small-timers, none of the big names. A few of them really did fit the mold of pirates perfectly, at least according to the records we have. They blasted into town bragging about their massive halls and causing a ruckus, which naturally led to them facing the gallows. A few of those even indulged in that old English medieval tradition of the finest highwaymen and rogues of japing at the crowd at their own execution, mocking the men, flirting with the women, insinuating that he may have had a good time with the governor's wife, that sort of thing. And it's worth asking whether or not those pirates, well, maybe they were perfectly good at the job capturing halls of rich cargo, fencing it at the nearest friendly-ish town, and drinking away their winnings with women who would surely rob them of anything they hadn't already spent. Maybe, though, they aren't remembered or famous names because the English became so efficient during this period at hunting the pirates down. But a few names do stand out. The first of these was a pirate named Captain Graham, now I say Captain Graham because I'm an American, but it should probably rightly be pronounced Captain Graham. It's even occasionally spelled Graham to reflect the English pronunciation. However, I'm not going to give Captain Graham his first name, because there may be two pirate captains Graham. The first Captain Graham captured a sloop sailing out of Port Royal. He sent the crew back to Jamaica on board his small bark. In a letter of 20th June, 1684, Governor Thomas Lynch wrote of this pirate crew, quote, Many of the men are of this island, 
of Jamaica. But the chief pirate, Graham, is not. It is said that they mean to sail for the South Sea. End quote. Now, we don't know what happened to that ship. Maybe they did, in fact, make it to the South Sea, or maybe not. That same year, in 1684, a crewman named Robert Dangerfield gave a deposition in the Carolina colony. He alleged that his ship, a privateer out of Port Royal under Captain Jeremy Rindell, had been overthrown by the ship's doctor, a man named John Graham. Now that was likely the same chief pirate, Graham, but not definitively. That deposition was not so much concerned with the pirates, but with the marooning that the officers endured. It said that they were left, quote, upon an island, giving them a turtle net and a canoe, the said island not being inhabited and about ten leagues from the main or any other inhabited place. End quote. It followed up with the pirate ship saying, quote, thence they sailed for Virginia and New England, thence to the Guinea coast, and back to Carolina, where she was wrecked. End quote. After that wreck, some of the crew were arrested and imprisoned, a few of them executed, but Captain Graham got away. He appears next off the coast of Nantucket in command of a 14-gun sloop in the company of another pirate, the other significant name in the New England colonies at this time, a man named Captain Veal. Now, we shouldn't confuse this Captain Veal with Thomas Veal, who was a pirate that operated out of Boston in the 1650s. That Thomas Veal is almost legendary, and the search for his treasure goes on to this very day. This two-ship fleet of Captains Veal and Graham captured a number of ships out of New England, but they weren't terribly consequential, except perhaps in one way. At this moment, in 1685, Jean Hamlin reappeared in the West Indies. He first appeared for a moment off the coast of Brazil, but then, like a firebolt, he was back. He was on board a new ship, La Nouveau Trampus. That ship is said to have originated in New England, but the details of how it got into the hands of a French pirate who had been nowhere near New England, well, they're sketchy. It's likely that another pirate captured her and either sold or lost her to the French pirate. That could have been Captain Graham and Captain Veal. The timeline works out. They disappeared from New England shortly before Jean Hamlin reappeared in the West Indies on board his new ship. But despite all of this piracy occurring off the coast of New England, Sally Rose and her captain, Thomas Pound, good king's man, were not sent out after Captains Graham and Veal. No, Captain Pound had a bigger concern. There was another pirate named George Peterson who has been there for everything today. He was at the raid on Veracruz. He was likely even at the blockade of Cuba in 1682. Peterson had been a crewman for Jean Hamlin on his first cruise and then went on to work for Jan Willems. In 1686, George Peterson appeared in Newport, Rhode Island with valuable cargo to sell. That's why we know much about him at all. The cargo he carried was of much interest to the people of New England. We're talking about elephant husks and rare hides and at least 
two Spanish prize ships. Now, Captain Peterson sold much of his cargo and sailed away with empty holds and a full purse. But HMS Rose was sent out from Boston to chase him down. Captain Pound didn't reach the Nantucket Sound in time to intercept Peterson, but he did have a second chance. Two years later, in May of 1688, George Peterson was spotted off of Martha's Vineyard. Thomas Pound was closer this time and sailed out to capture him. And here in 1688, he reached the scene in time. Peterson attempted to flee the Sally Rose, but the Rose had the wind and caught up with the pirate ship. This is a bad situation for any pirate to find themselves in, squarely in the sights of a Royal Navy vessel. Peterson turned to fight, but continued attempting to catch the wind and get away, and what resulted was a running battle that lasted for several hours. And pirates were excellent at this sort of combat. It's in fact what they were best at, aside from perhaps boarding. But the Rose had the wind, and the guns, and the manpower, and eventually scored a direct hit on Peterson's ship, damaging the masts and the rigging, and piercing the hull. The pirates were going nowhere, except down. But that is a dangerous situation. For the pirates, obviously, they were sinking, but for the HMS Rose as well. Now that the pirates had nothing left to lose, they were able to open up with everything they had on the Rose. They bombarded her as they sank and did a significant amount of damage. The HMS Rose was severely damaged. Not damaged beyond repair, they did sell the ship, but too damaged to continue being a part of the Royal Navy. However, for his valor in battle against the pirates, the good king's man, Thomas Pound, was given a new command. The colonies of New England came together and raised a levy to buy him a new ship that they called the Mary. That name, Mary, turned out to be a harbinger of things to come here in July of 1688. Captain Thomas Pound, loyal, good king's man and naval captain, would hold his position for only four months. In November of 1688, England and her colonies suffered a political tidal wave in the Glorious Revolution. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, all of you new patrons, and I'd like to apologize to Skipper. I'm certain that my birthday wishes came late, but I can only blame our recording schedule and release dates around here. However, I hope you had a fantastic birthday. I'd also like to thank everybody who donates to the show through the website, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. All of you who have gone over to our YouTube page to subscribe and like the videos and do all the things you're supposed to do on YouTube, and those of you who have done the same things wherever you listen to the show. Everybody who has recommended this show, and even though I'm not very active on places like Twitter, I do see your recommendations and love them, and thank you. Recently, I saw one of you engaged in a conversation about gay history involving the pirates, and thanks for the shout-out, but I'm angry at you for stealing a line that I was not clever enough to have thought of. 
talking about pirates, not having written down their innermost thoughts and feelings, saying things like, and I quote this Twitter user, I love two things, kissing men and robbing Spain. It was great. Our theme music, as always, is The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I mean, come on, what are you doing with your life? You can find them at brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight